You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. Uh, My name is Robert, and I serve uh, the church along with my wife, Heather, and our two kids. And today I'm going to read Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by faith you have been saved through, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Robert. Hey, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Tanner House. I'm the the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If you're a guest, thank you so much for spending your Sunday with us. Uh, There's a connect card under your chair. You can take a minute, fill that out. Let us know how we can connect with you, how we can plug you into the life of the body, how we can serve you. Um, And there are QR codes around if you want to fill out a connect card that way. We also have Bibles in the back. If you need one, you can, you can raise your hand. Um, or if you're on your phone, we use the ESV. So I don't think it's any secret. If you've known me for a while, you've been around me, been at a church with me, I'm a big fan of the, the little, little ones at, at Redeemer Church. I feel like I'm one of these rare ones that really enjoyed the, the newborn phase of, of my parenting journey. Granted, we only went through it one time because Levi was two when, we, when he came to live with us, and Shep and Audie were three, four months old, and, and Maya was almost a perfect infant. Like, she started sleeping through the night at five weeks old. So I, I'm just gauging my view of this stage in life through one, a very special baby. Um, but I do genuinely love babies and toddlers. Like, they're my people. They, they get me, you know, like part of the reason is I just appreciate their honesty. So like, I think I'm funny and I think I'm fun to be around. Uh, and when I'm funny and fun, they laugh and smile. And when I'm not, they just stare back at me. So like, like what else you got for me? There's really no fake with babies, no fake with toddlers. Like if they're happy, you know it. Clap your hands. Um, somebody, thank you, Lauren. Appreciate you. Uh, if they're upset, you also know it. The little ones do not care. 
They don't care what you think about them. They will throw a tantrum in the middle of the aisle at the grocery store and not even care that their parents are being judged by complete strangers. They do not care. And you know why they don't care? Why in a moment they can flip a switch and act like fools for the whole world to see? It's because it's natural. It's natural to us to act like sinners. It's because we are all born broken, sinful, and rebellious by nature. So when I tell you that little kids are honest, they're just doing what is natural to all of us. Like acting like fools in the middle of the HEB produce department is the fruit of the problem. The roots, however, are so much deeper and so much more devastating than we may even realize. So this morning, I want us to spend some time considering our own brokenness because it's possible, dare I say even probable, that you don't know or you don't realize just how broken you really are. I think it's probable because sometimes our responses to the sin in our life is just so casual. And so I want to spend some time with that this morning. And then I also want to consider two of the most amazing words in all of scripture and spend some time considering our response to them. And so let's pray. And then we're going to dive into this text together. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, show us our great need for you. Lord, you are a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, you do not leave the guilty unpunished. And so, Lord, just show us our need for you. Show us our need for dependency on you. Lord, I just ask that you would move this morning. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've been walking through Ephesians the last two weeks. So before we dive into this text, let me give us a brief review of the last two weeks. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in and around this region known as Ephesus. This is what is in the Bible, if you're reading the New Testament, known as Asia Minor, and what is today the country of Turkey. Paul writes this letter to these churches, and in chapter 1, he outlines a couple of things for them. First of all, we see him talking about sonship, our adoption as predestined before the foundation of the world, adopted by love from God through Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance in the faith. By the Holy Spirit, we will inherit all that Jesus inherits in the coming kingdom. And as sons and daughters of God, we will dwell with the Lord forever. Paul spends two sections writing to this church about what is ours and then how we're to grasp onto the promises of God to us. 
Paul says he's praying for the Ephesian church, but he isn't praying for them to be delivered. He isn't praying for them to be healed. He is praying that they would know God and that they would know his power that has been given to them by the resurrection of Jesus and revealed to them in the word of God. And so in today's text, Paul is going to continue in his case, in, our, in his discussion for our adoption and our salvation by showing us who we were before Christ and who we are after Christ has intercepted our hearts. He starts by giving us some honest truth. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So this is your lot in life. Before Christ intercepted your heart and made faith in him possible, you were dead. So if you've ever seen the movie The Princess Bride, one of my all-time favorites, my wife can't stand it, we got some things to work on. If you haven't, if you've seen this movie, this is not a Miracle Max scenario. In the movie, if you haven't seen it, you should, but if you haven't, it's... uh, This main character, Wesley, is brought to this kooky miracle worker played by Billy Crystal. His name is Miracle Max. And they lay him before Miracle Max, and they're like, he's dead. And Miracle Max says, no, no, no. Your friend is not dead. He's only mostly dead. And then he takes this big, like, fireplace, like, thing, sticks it in his mouth and inflates his lungs, and Wesley's... Wesley's good to go. This is no Miracle Max moment. We're not mostly dead. We're not partly dead. We're not sick with a bad disease. No, we are all the way fully dead. Spiritually dead, living physically in trespasses and sins. Paul isn't saying that we are dead because of the choices that we make at various points in our lives. No, he's saying that we are born dead. We inherit the sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And look, sin is more than just making bad choices. Sin is rebellion against God. God is our standard. And because of our sin natures, we actively and consistently rebel against him. We're dead. And if that weren't bad enough, it gets way worse. And before we continue down this, down this text, I just would invite you real quick to take a really long, hard, and painful look in the mirror and just see how this is true of you. How it was true of you, and if and how it may still remain true of you. There's some good coming in this text for you. But first, you have to deal with this part before you can rightly see the redemption in this text and see the redemption uh, that Christ has purchased for you and see who you are in Christ. So let's pick it up again in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Before Christ, before Christ rescued us, we were dead. We're walking in these sins. Paul talks about how this plays out in three ways. He says, first, you were dead following the course of this world. The course of this world is also known as like cultural tyranny. Our cultural idol of the day, and that is self and the autonomy of self. So think about this. Culturally, we chase things like status or sex or money or stuff or alcohol or food or leisure or family. And we chase anything. You can insert anything you want here. And all of this is done to externally make us look a certain way. This is an external attempt to glorify ourselves. Maybe more, uh, a more broad way to say this is the collective sum of humanity is trying to make our own ways to God or trying to define who or what God is for me or trying to live a life apart from God. Cultural idolatry. Maybe another way of saying it is this. The, the ways of the world following the, what's the text say? Uh, following the course of this world is the power of the world that permeates society. This is alien to God because this is the stuff of non-believers. It is the value system of the world that is anti-Jesus and against a Christian worldview and a Christian ethic. We're seeing this culturally in our, in our world today. We're seeing this take place in the fields of education and politics primarily. And so, but before the conservatives in here start mentally bashing the liberals, the last couple of election cycles would show that maybe the quote evangelical unquote voter is less Christian and more partisan than perhaps we previously thought or would have been willing to acknowledge. But that's for another sermon. Anyways, John Stott defines the course of the world in this way. He says, Wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular or amoral or materialistic, or they're being dehumanized by poverty, hunger, or unemployment, or by racial discrimination, or by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. The course of this world is where a non-Christian society dominates and holds people in captivity by whatever idols are at work in our culture. Idolatry happens when we take what God has meant for us to be gifts and we replace them as gods for us. We cannot serve two masters. If you are being led by one or more of these things, then they are your master. And you're held captive to them. Paul also says that we're following the prince of the power of the air. This means Satan. Now, this doesn't mean that all unbelievers are possessed by Satan or by demons. But this does mean that Satan is present. And by his presence in the world has the power to influence and entice us to sin. This is as old as the Garden of Eden. We are so prone to 
believe lies that Satan tells us, and we're so prone and willing to then seek fulfillment outside of God's design for us. Satan has a way of convincing us that we are less than, that we're inferior, that God is withholding things from us, and that God isn't for us or that God isn't who he says he is. And then we chase things, fall into sin, and then we are left feeling less than or inferior When we get to the things that don't fulfill us like they thought we would, then we're left feeling empty and shamed and feeling guilty and condemned. And then we run from God and pursue sin, and it easily entices us. We are held captive. We're held captive to the prince of the power of the air. Thirdly, there are the passions of the flesh. These are the internal things. So like the first things being more corporate and and cultural in nature, the passions of the flesh then are the outworkings of these things. Meaning we see the world around us and, and they're pursuing these things. And so then we join in. Consider the cultural sexual ethics of our day, for example, and how they play out in our life. We have an unrestrained us view of sex. That's why pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry in this country. That's just one example. And what's worse, remember I told you things were going to get way worse before they get any better. What's worse than being dead in these things is that we actually really enjoy it. We like to brag about it. We like to tell stories about our lives tainted and marred by sin. And then we laugh and we minimize and we carry on like it's no big deal. Paul says that because of our sin, we were, by nature, the nature that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we were, by nature, children of wrath. Meaning this. The wrath of God, the just and deserved wrath of a holy God who cannot and will not tolerate sin is against us. And we're all in the same boat. Delighting in our sin, living in our sin, blissfully carrying on, hopeless and treasonous rebels, enjoying our debauchery, deserving hell, deserving our punishment because of our sin, and this has affected us all. Our spiritual situation, apart from Jesus, could not be more tragic. God would be perfectly just to leave us as we are, and it would not change who he is. And we think it's not a big deal. But is that your official stance when someone sins against you? I mean, think about it. When someone wrongs you, you want justice. And God is just. And God will punish sin and sinners because he is just. But here's some good news. Verse 4 begins with the two most amazing words in all of Scripture. But God. But God. We were dead in our trespasses, but God. Our sin had claimed our life and sentenced us to death, but God. We were doomed, but God. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead. But God. But God is rich in mercy and loves us. Paul affirms both the just wrath of God against sin and the righteous love of Christ towards sinners. Upon the most unworthy people comes mercy and love and grace. So let's define a couple terms. Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve separation from God and all his gifts for all eternity. And by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we have been spared. We have been given mercy. But even more glorious than mercy, than God's gracious mercy to you, is that we have been saved by grace. Grace, then, is getting what we don't deserve. Paul has talked about our inheritance. Everything that belongs to Jesus is now ours as well. We have been adopted And because of our status as sons and daughters, we have the inheritance of Jesus, an eternal kingdom where we will reign with Jesus in the presence of God himself. Because Christians, you are no longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters of God. We don't deserve our sonship, but he has has given it to us by his great mercy and by his great grace. And how does this happen? So I heard it described like this one time. Imagine you're like drowning in the ocean. The waves are tossing you back and forth. You're going under, deeper. You're about to drown. And at the last possible second, you muster up enough strength to throw your hand up. And God grabs you and pulls you out of your impending death. That's not at all how it works. So if we want to continue along this drowning metaphor, you're drowned. Already drowned. You know you're drowned. You actually like that you're drowned, sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Jesus jumps in, pulls you out of the ocean, and breathes new life into your lungs. And then he gives you room on his luxury cruise liner ship for the rest of your life. He makes you a captain. That's the power of God. God alone has the power to make dead things alive again. And only God has the power to save. And save he has to the uttermost. Verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. he's not only saved you from the penalty of sin, but Christian, you will also reign with him for all eternity. The text says he's going to show the world his kindness towards us in Christ. Meaning in love, God has accomplished all of this for the praise and honor and glory of himself for our benefit. By God's power, he has raised us up 
This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He has filled us with that power. He has filled us with this life that is from God. Our spiritual death has been dealt with. Christ has proven victorious over sin and death, and by his resurrection, we are now united with Christ. And what's more, not only are we forgiven, which is great and glorious and praiseworthy, but not only are we forgiven, but we're also empowered because God lives inside of us now. So because of that, we can grasp the fact that God's promises are not just for a future inheritance with him, but an abiding presence with us today. Brian Chapel says that we are not merely made alive, but we have been given the status of the risen Jesus to whom we are united by faith. Our Savior has given us power over sin and has made us right because our sin has been pardoned and its power has been annulled. We're now counted as God's own children, seated with God on high. But listen to me. If you think this reward is only for something in the future, you miss a huge blessing of Christ today. Paul writes to this church in the past tense, saying that God has raised them up. He has already raised you up. And also in the past tense, that God has already also seated us in the heavenly realms with him. Christ has accomplished our purchase of pardon, and there awaits for us a glorious inheritance of eternal life. But we are sons and daughters of God now. So we possess everything in Christ now. Because of Christ's power to defeat sin and death on our behalf through himself, we can know God now. We can put sin to death now. We can resist the temptation of sin now. Because of the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we have been united with Christ now. The cross and resurrection speaks to us that God loves you, Christian. God is for you, Christian. You have been united with Christ if your faith is in Jesus and Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You've been united with Christ to experience him, to love him, to walk with him, to follow him by faith and dependency on him. The power of pardon from sin means that you can know God now. We get to know God by praying to God and being in the word of God. We get to know God by spending time with God. So here's a, a brief aside. I think we all, if you're a Christian, I think you'll agree with me. We all want a perfect walk with Jesus. Like, I want godly desires all the time. I want to sense the presence of the Lord in my life all of the time. And this is available to me. I just want a relentless pursuit of Jesus where my quiet times are all awesome all the time. Anybody else just desiring a perfect walk with the Lord? A couple hands back there. Um, but I also want a perfect walk with Jesus like 
right now, right this second. Here's something I've noticed in my life. I don't just wake up in the morning one day and think, today's going to be the day that I'm going to start reading my Bible and praying, and then everything is going to be perfect. That's not how it works. It takes discipline to be dead to sin. You grow in Christ and in a relationship with Christ through consistency with Christ. So it's okay, listen to me. It's okay to be where you're at. It's okay to be where you're at. It's not okay for you to stay there. So if you haven't been in the Word in days or weeks or months or years or even ever, and you're a believer in Jesus, grace to you. But it's not okay for you to stay where you're at. Christ is calling you to more because you are a son or a daughter of him. You want to honor Christ with your life? Start by spending some time in the word and spend some time in prayer. And if you need help, confess that to your community group because you can't do this alone. Paul writes this letter to a church. So this is a corporate call to pursue Christ. And if you really consider the next few verses, anything other than devotion to Jesus is missing the whole point of the gospel and the whole point of the Christian life. Let's look at this. Verse 8. If you're into memorizing scripture, these next three verses, you should put them on your list. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is the second time that Paul tells us that we have been saved by grace. And this grace is a gift of God. Your salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift of God by the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God given to us by faith alone, through Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Grace comes through faith, and then our human response is belief. Faith is how we grasp the truth of our wretchedness made clean by Jesus. Faith is not a work that we put forward. It is a gift to us. Salvation is not transactional in which God provides grace and mercy and then we provide the faith. No, we bring nothing to God. The faith we have is a gift given by the gift of grace. We have nothing to boast in except a crucified Savior. We have not earned this salvation. We cannot work for it because we can never do enough. The only thing good in us, the only thing we should boast about is Christ's work to save us, to call us to belief, to change our hearts, to align our wants and desires with his. Good works will never make you right before God. And after Paul says that works can't save, he then highlights the importance of works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
The reformers used to say that faith alone justifies, meaning it is faith alone that makes us right with and before God. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. It's not faith plus works that save us, but we have a faith that is active. We don't get to respond to our salvation by kicking back and waiting to die and showing up and doing a few churchy things, Jesus-y things here and there. No. We respond to our salvation as a gift to us by living like Jesus. Paul says we are God's workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is, is poema, which is where we get our English word for poem. Or if you've been in West Texas too long, poem. I took a risk there, and y'all like that one. Okay. Um, our English word for poem, which means this. We're God's masterpiece. A, a masterpiece. When you think about art, um, the artist's masterpiece is like the best thing he's ever done. And he says that about us. Have you ever been to a zoo you see all these cool animals. I love watching the monkeys fly around. You see all these cool animals doing all these cool, amazing things. I really love the gorillas. Like, their strength is just so impressive to me. And I saw on the internet this week, so it must be true, that gorillas are so strong that their strength cannot be measured. So basically, I'm standing behind this glass in the enclosure, just hoping for the best. Uh, <laughs> I love watching the gorillas. And I walk around the zoo with my kids, and there's just so many cool animals to look at that really just scream of a creative designer. And God cares for all of these animals, but out of God's whole creation, he's most fond of us. In spite of it all, Christian, God is most fond of you. Can we just sit in that for a second? God is most fond of you. Your sin debt was steep. So steep that you could never pay it back. And God is most fond of you. This God who sees you Everything you have ever done, every thought you have ever had, this God who has seen you at your worst moments, and he loves you in spite of you. That should humble you, Christian. You know what you've done. You know how broken and sinful you are. And God is most fond of you. Our only appropriate response is worship. We worship with all of our lives. So I want to close with a couple questions, kind of a twofold ending here. 
Christian, do you live like you are Christ's workmanship? Are you laying hold of what is available to you in Jesus? And are you submitting to the lordship of Christ in your life? He's yours. You're his. And he has called you to walk with him, to join him in mission, and then to delight in him. Do you believe that this is true of you? When you hear that you are God's masterpiece, that you are the most proud creation God has made, does that lead you to delight in Jesus or does that lead you to like fear, guilt, shame, condemnation? Do you believe that? God is most fond of you. There is now no more guilt, fear, shame, or condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christian, take hold of what is yours. Repent of your unbelief and abide in Christ. Rest in the truth and the promise of Scripture that you have a God who sees you and wants you and went to the cross for you. Run to your Father's open arms and delight in your good and perfect Father. Secondly, I'd ask this. When you think about your life, are your desires to honor Christ or are you still held captive by the ways of the world? Do you live like Christ is your greatest treasure? Or are you just trying to do enough to make you feel like you're okay. Like you've done enough to please God. Like surely I've done enough, he's gonna accept me. I'm a good person. Or do you live like Christ is your greatest treasure? If you're not a Christian, God is calling you to faith and dependency. Eternal life, joy, fulfillment, they're all available to you. Take hold of Jesus by faith. Christ is calling you out of unbelief. He wants you. He wants you to treasure him above all else. He is calling you to repentance by faith in him. Turn from your sin. Receive his forgiveness. Believe in the cross and the resurrection because in them sin and death no longer have any hold on you. Place your faith in him by believing that he is better than all of your sin. Turn from your sin. Receive forgiveness by faith in him this morning, every single one of you. God is most fond of you. Let's pray.